Well, good morning, everyone. Please find your way in God's word to Romans chapter five. Like I said last, well, two weeks ago, a powerful, life-changing chapter. Today we'll be in Romans. We're going to flop over to Ephesians. We're going to look at access to God, peace with God. You know, I love when the word teaches about peace with God and access to God and the hope of the glory of God, because we see that with peace with God, that takes care of the past. We no longer, God no longer holds our sins against us. Access to God takes care of the present. We can come to him at any time. Hope of the glory of God takes care of the future. One day we shall share in his glory. But it all begins with faith. And we saw how that the faith we have is, is a faith like Abraham's faith. And we look back at the end of chapter four, and we, we got a clear understanding of what this faith is. If you look back at chapter four, verse 24, it says, it will be counted to us. That's us. We're the us. The ones who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So faith like Abraham's is one that believes in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. One that believes in the resurrection of Christ and the one to come. A faith that believes Jesus was delivered up for our sins. That is paid the wages of sins. And was raised for our justification. We are declared right. Now when God raised Jesus from the dead, a statement was made at that time. And that statement is, God said, this is really my son. And not only that, but God was saying also that those who believe in him are really my children. You know, as we study chapter five, we can see that, that Paul has made a, a full circle. In, in the introduction chapter, chapter one, Paul states his case. He gives us good news. He spends four chapters of bad news and brings us back around to the good news again. I'm going to do the same thing like what Paul does. But listen, listen or follow along as I read uh, verse 1, chapter 1. Listen how Paul starts this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ. See if you listen, see if you hear the same language as we hear in chapter 5. It's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Concerning his son, who was, de who was descended from David according to the flesh, and listen, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So we'll see that same language back here in chapter five. So if we go to chapter five, Paul continues to tell us the full gospel. He says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. By faith, we have been declared right. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have enmity with God. If one has not received the free gift of salvation, then he is under condemnation. Condemnation, condemnation means that God declares us sinners. It's a declaration of war. 
Justification means that God has declared us to be in the right, which is a declaration of peace. And the only way anyone can have peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope that you have thought about that peace as we studied it a couple of weeks ago. I prayed that the church body would walk in victory and be a light in a world who is looking for peace in all the wrong places. I have prayed that the people of God would be a light, that we would be joyful Christians. And if we are, then maybe, maybe over the holidays, as you're around all your extended family, not over 10, maybe, <laughs> just maybe, somebody would ask, how, how can you have peace in such terrible times? Or maybe they will ask, what do you have to be so joyful about? Please tell me. And from there, that's when you tell them about Jesus Christ, how he is alive and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Tell them that we rejoice because our Redeemer lives. We rejoice because through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Oh, we have so much to be grateful for. What a story we have to tell. So if you're going to run your family off over the holidays, don't do it politically. Run them off with Jesus if you're going to do it. Amen? Amen. That's the way it used to be. <laughs> now, now we talked a lot about uh, uh, the Holy of Holies and how the veil was torn from top to bottom, thus clearing the way for man to have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we talk about the Holy of Holies, as we... As we talk about the veil being torn, we can see something happening here. We can see how Christ unifies his people. How through Christ, we are all one. Very important to remember the word one. We are all one in the kingdom of God. Re remember why Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. It, it wasn't just so well, we could all just get along, right? No, it was to unify the children of God. It was to show how through Christ we are all one. The kingdom of God brings together the Jew and Gentile as one. That's important. So as we study this, the study the word written to the church in Rome, when Paul brings up the statement, access to God, the Jewish nation clearly understood that Paul was talking about the temple. This, this, this was where mankind could quote, get access to God. It's where he would come to get close to God. Every Jewish person knew about the veil. Every Jewish church person knew that the veil covered the entrance of the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple. Everyone knew this. You know, I, I would go as far to say that every Gentile in that time also knew about that veil. It was a big deal. It's a real big deal. So when Paul writes about access to God. Everyone heard the echoes of the temple. They heard the echoes of the temple. Now I want to point out something here. It was just the Jews that were kept from God's presence by this veil. You're saying, what? Why just the Jew? Did, did the veil not keep everyone from God? Yes, in a sense. But if you remember, if you remember when we we studied the book of Mark. We talked about the layout of the temple, and we saw that the temple had an outer court and an inner court. The outer court was called the Gentile court, right? This is where we, Jesus would teach. You know, This is where Jesus turned over the money changers' tables. 
you know, everyone was allowed in this court. And there was a wall that separated the inner court and the outer court from the outer court. And the, and the Gentiles were not allowed to enter the inner court. It was the inner court that where the Holy of Holies was. And only the Jews were allowed in that area. So the curtain, the veil, kept the Jews from the presence of God. Follow me here. It was a wall that kept the Gentiles from the presence of God. It's my understanding that on that wall was a sign, a warning that said any Gentile who went beyond that wall would be killed. It was a wall that separated the Jews and the Gentile. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what Ephesians 2.11 says. We will see how the word is unified in its message and how God brings about unity. So turn to the right. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Thank you. No test. Follow along. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we, so we see we have the two groups here. We have the Gentiles uncircumcised, then we have the Jews that are circumcised. Now, the Gentiles were separated from the Jews three ways, right? They were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promises. And because of that, the Gentiles had no hope and were without God in the world. Houston, we got a problem. Now, something that I want you to keep in mind here as we walk through this text this text is not about race. It is about unif it's not about unifying race within the church. If we make it about race, then we miss what God has actually done. We miss the big picture. Listen, we, we all came from Adam. We are all one race, one blood. We are all in the race of Adam. Did you know that there is less than 0.2% genetic difference between any of us? And I didn't make that number up. <laughs> that one's for real, all right? Less than 0.2% genetic difference between any of us. So, so the question is, the question we have to ask is, what makes the Gentiles different from the Jews? If it's not, quote, race, what then separates the Jews from the rest of the world? Well, it's something that God did. God set them apart, you see. The distinction between Jew and Gentile is a real distinction, yes, and God made it. And here it is. The, the difference between the Jew and Gentile is a covenantal distinction, not a racial one. Listen, the first Jew had to become a Jew, had to be made a Jew, right? You understand what I'm saying? You know, God did not change Abraham genetically 
Abraham is not another species. All right. God changed him externally through covenant and circumcision. It was an act, an external act that separated Jew from the Gentile. So the Jew Gentile divide is not a genetic one. God makes this distinction between the two through the covenant and the circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So the answer to what separates the Jew and Gentile, covenantial. Keep that in mind as we walk through this text here in Ephesians. And, and, and when you understand that, this text will be so clear to you on what God did. Ephesians verse 12 again. Remember that you at that time were separated, were separated from Christ, talking about the Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, outside of this community, strangers to the covenants of the pro and the promise, and the result is having no hope and without God in the world. That, that is as bad as bad news can get. Amen? No hope. They had no hope. So we had the bad news, but here comes the good news. Verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look what Paul is saying there. You, you were once far off. Now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Paul is talking about here in Ephesians is the same thing that he's talking about in Romans. It's an allusion to the temple again. God's people went to the temple to what? To be close to God. They went there to obtain access to God. God's presence, presence dwelled inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. Now, I want you to walk with me here. I'm going to begin at the Holy of Holies, and I'm going to walk out from there. Let's just see how far off the Gentiles were off were the Gentiles. Even though they had they had come to worship at the temple, they have come to get close. Let's see how far away they were. So you have the Holy of Holies. Outside of the Holy of Holies is a place where the priests ministered. Only the priests were allowed in there. And then out from there, you have an area where the Levites could go. Only the Levites could go in that area. And from there, there was an area where the only the Jewish men could go. And if you keep walking out from there, there was an area that, that only a place where the Jewish women could go. And then you finally, when you get, and then you finally get to the other side of that wall that we've talked about. And you get to the court of the Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles who have come to know and love God would come to worship. But even though they have come to know and love God, when they came to worship him, they would have to do it in the back of the temple. They were way in the back of the temple. They would be as far away from the presence of God as you can get. They would be as far away from the Holy of Holies as you can get and yet still be in the temple. So do you get the picture of separation between the Jew and Gentile? Do you see the wall that separated them? It was one that God had made. It was external. 
Can you see the separation of the two? Because it was very, very visible back then. Very visible. Now, when we read that Paul says we have access to Christ, we have access to God. When we understand that, we can better understand the implications here. The people in that day knew what happened in the temple. They knew that when Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. An event like that was not kept secret. Everyone knew what happened to the veil. But not only that, the wall came down also. The word says, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This was an act of God that unifies Jew and Gentile. Now, at the moment that Christ died, the wall didn't literally fall at that time, but it did when the temple was destroyed later. But listen, when, when Christ died, now all of a sudden, those who had been sitting in way in the back, way back there, can now come forward and have access to God. Those Gentiles have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The veil is torn. The wall has come down. No longer does anyone go through a veil or around a veil to access God. No longer is there a wall of hostility that stops anyone from having access to God now. We are unified as one. Because now, now we have been brought right to the throne of God by the blood of Jesus. We Gentiles. That's us. We Gentiles were far off, way in the back. But through Christ, we have been brought near. Amen? Amen. This is the message that Paul wants the church to get to understand. This is the message that unifies. The veil is torn. The wall has been knocked down. And the Jew and Gentiles are now one. We are all one in the kingdom of God. So the text is about uniting Jew and Gentile. What God had done to separate the two, that external work is no longer there. God has brought us all into the new covenant together. We are one. Listen, the, the blood of Christ is amazing. It doesn't just bring us near to God, even though that's amazing in itself. In itself. The blood of Christ doesn't just bring us near to one another. It, it does do that, but there's much more. Look at verse 14 here in Ephesians. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, speaking of the two, not nations, not ethnicity, just speaking of the two, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice what he says. The blood of Christ makes us one. I told you that's important. I want you to see how incredible this is. I want you to see how important this is. I want you to think about bringing together as one. I, I want you to see how the Jew and Gentile is brought together as one through the eyes of marriage. Watch this. If I were to go to the hospital, which I never do, and I would have, would have to fill out the paperwork, and they would ask, who is your closest living relative? Who would I put down? Him. Praise the Lord. But I put down I put down my wife. Why would I do that? Why would I put down my wife? Tammy and I are not related by blood. Yet she's my closest living relative. Think about it for a minute. 
She's my next of kin, my bone of bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. How does that happen? How does how are we one? Well, it's because of the mysterious supernatural work of God that has united Tammy and me as one. We are one. Praise the Lord. Did you see that? Did you see that? So when God says, so when God says he has made Jew and Gentile one, it is the same supernatural work of God that has brought the two together and made them one. God knocks down the walls of separation. He removes the external acts that separates the Jew and Gentile. And then he makes them one. He makes them one family. And all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are one in the kingdom of God. We are all brothers and sisters here. We are all children of God. That's a big deal. Amen. All that happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus is the one who preaches peace to those who are far off and, and, peach, and also preaches peace to those who are, who are near. It is through Jesus that God has created one new man instead of two, a new humanity. It is Jesus who solves the problems that the Gentile had, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. The problems are solved through Christ. Verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. No longer are we cut off. We now have access to the presence of God. So Christ takes care of that separation issue, not a problem anymore. Verse 19, so then you're no longer stranger and aliens. We, the Gentiles, are now in the new covenant. And because we are in the new covenant, we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That takes care of the alienation from the commonwealth of Israel. We're all in one kingdom, the kingdom of God. Houston, God has fixed the problem and we're coming home. Amen. The Holy of Holies is gone. The veil has been torn in two. The wall has been knocked down. The physical temple is not needed anymore. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. It is through Christ that his children grow into the holy temple, grow into the holy temple in the, in the Lord. God took two, made them one, and together they are now the temple of God. And because of him, because of Christ, any believing Jew, any believing Gentile, has access to God Almighty. So what do we do now? What do we do? Well, now that we know that, we are to draw near to God. We have access. 
We stand, we are to stand in the grace of God and draw on his inexhaustible riches of grace. Listen to Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Listen, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So as we stand in the riches of his grace, we will see his will. We now understand the mystery of his will as he has united the two. And it is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. We can see the supernatural work of God that has brought the two together and made them one. That brings us back to Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because of what we now know, because we stand in that amazing grace, we can now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It, it actually says we are continually rejoicing in the no-so hope of the glory of God. Why? Because we have seen God fulfill his promises by making one out of the Jew and Gentile. And because of God fulfilling his promises, we can rejoice or boast in the glory of God because we know that that day is coming, amen? We know that mankind was created for glory. We will see more about that in chapter 8. But we also know this. We know because of sin, because mankind turned from God, mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. We lost that glory. But the good news is that it's God's purpose to recreate his image, his glory, fully in us because of christ we now have hope or or look forward to that time when we will share in christ's glory we have the lord's own assurance that one day we will not only we will behold his divine glory but we will not only be able to take a part of it we will partake of it not only do we behold his divine glory but we'll partake of it the glory of his own divine holiness and majestic perfection will radiate in us and through us for eternity. We boast in hope of the glory of God because we know that we will share in God's own glory. How do we know that? Because the word tells us that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. God has so predestined us in order that we might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's us. In other words, God's own glory is manifested through his grace in which we stand. And through sharing his divine glory with those who 
deserve only destruction. Christ himself is our hope, 1 Timothy 1.1. Listen to the words Jesus prayed in his beautiful high priestly prayer. John 17, 22, listen, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Oh, how beautiful to hear. One day we shall share in his glory. We will partake in the glory that mankind has lost. We ought to live like we know that we know that day is coming so that the world may know that God sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We need to let the world know that we are joyfully looking forward to the time when we not only gaze on the splendor of God, but will ourselves be manifested in glory. Oh, what a day that will be. Listen, we cannot comprehend the full significance of that hope here on earth, nor will we get over the wonder of it through all eternity. But what we do know is this. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also appear with him in glory, Colossians 3, 4 says. Does that not change how we look at the world? Does that not change how we view our circumstances? It should. Listen, we are so blessed because of what Christ has done. The word tells us that we should rejoice in our suffering. That's how blessed we are. Look at down here, Romans 5, verse 3. Uh, not only that, but we rejoiced in our suffering. Verse 3. What kind of talk is that? Yeah, this is one of those verses that is foolish to those who have not put their trust in Christ. You know, I just got hit by a car. My legs are broke. I'll never walk again. I'm so happy. I'm just rejoicing in my suffering. No, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's not talking about the troubles that are common to mankind. He's speaking about the troubles or tribulations that Christians suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it will happen. Scripture promises us persecution. Scripture does not promise us a new car if we follow Jesus. Scripture does not promise us that money out of nowhere will appear in your mailbox. It does not promise to fix everything that we think is wrong in our lives. What it does promise is all who desire to live a God, live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Listen to what Jesus said when he gave the Beatitudes. The last Beatitude, Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christians will suffer for the sake of Jesus. And if you suffer for the sake of Jesus, then rejoice. Rejoice because of that. We rejoice. Why? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Persecution for Christ's sake in this life is itself a guarantee of our future glory. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So listen, if you go around acting like Jesus, if you start living a Christ-like life, persecution will come. And when it does, you will be able to praise the Lord. You will be able to rejoice because you know why you're being persecuted. And listen, persecution can come on many levels. You know, young kids, it could be as simple as losing friends because you follow Jesus. Praise the Lord. What's your friend to start with? And it can be as bad as death. You know, many have suffered and died for the sake of the gospel over the years, and it's still going on in the world today. Persecution for following Christ around the world is a lot different than what we experience here in America. And think about this. Suffering was was a normal experience for the first century Christians. Think about that. The ones who received this letter. So, you know, when I hear these prosperity preachers making all these false promises, when I hear them preaching great health and wealth, if you've come and follow Jesus, I just want to ask them, have you read what happened to Paul? I mean, explain that one. Paul had a pretty good life until he became a believer in Christ. Breaks my heart to see people taken in by that kind of teaching. But know this, no matter the level of persecution, we as believers have no reason to be defeated in this life. No matter how great our suffering may be, we should always have the attitude and the confidence that Paul had that he says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is being revealed to us. That's how we are to live, amen? We are to live in the hope of the glory, amen? Paul continues to tell us that we can live that way because as the suffering comes with us, and it just produces endurance. As the persecution comes, endurance or perseverance is the ability. Listen, it's the ability to remain during difficult times without giving in. We will be able to stand on what we know is truth. The idea here is to maintain our love for Christ through all our difficulties. We become stronger and stronger when we can maintain our love for Christ in any circumstance. And the result is increased faith. Remember the faith that Abraham had? His faith increased as he lived a life that glorified God. Our faith increases as we glorify God when persecution comes our way. And when our faith increases, so does our love and so does our hope. You see, the difficulties of life are not random, meaningless, or wasted when we are trusting in God. 
kind of goes with what the psalm was read today. There is a purpose. So read verse 3 again. Follow me as we watch the snowball effect. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Our endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Our hope needs to grow and develop with the rest of our spiritual being. Rejoicing during suffering will increase our endurance and strengthen, strengthen our overall character, leading to a more mature hope. It leads to a no-so hope. It leads to a living hope. God allows suffering to come in our lives to refine us, to teach us how to, be, how to become more and more dependent on him. God allows persecution to happen to us to sanctify us so that we will become more like Christ. As we go through tribulations and depend on God's grace, the trials only purify us. You want to know what mature hope looks like? One commentator said it this way. There is a progression that begins with suffering and ends with character. Suffering is like the pressure put on, a, put on carbon to produce a diamond. As we persevere, we are being formed and molded on the inside. God is producing his character within us. The end result of this chain reaction is hope. Confidence that God is in control and will see us through. God's work in us now, God's work in us now, conforming us to the likeness of his son, gives us a glimpse of the wonderful things he has in store for us in the future. That's a mature hope. So like Paul, we began with the good news this morning. We have peace with God. And we're going to end with good news, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope in God's promises will never disappoint us by being unfulfilled. Great is his faithfulness. When our hope is in God, we are absolutely assured that he will fulfill all that he has promised. What has God promised to his children? He has promised that we will be resurrected to eternal life and will be with him in glory. And we know this to be true because it is the Holy Spirit who has filled our hearts with God's love. And he is the one who continues to encourage us as we hope in God. Amen. Amen.